What does it mean, Messiah Matters? It means apart from him, we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, May 16th, 2018. This is Messiah Matters, number 218. Learning about cheese in the first century and becoming increasingly hungry. My name is Caleb Hegg. And with me, two men that together form a theological wrecking ball, Rob Van Hoff and my father, Tim Hegg. What is up, gentlemen? How's it going? <laughs> Hello, shalom. Good to be here. All right. Well, as our audience can already see, we have a special guest with us. My father, Tim Hag is here, and uh, we are going to expand our segment. Normally, each week, we do a segment called uh, uh, Buy, Borrow, or Bag. Hang on just a sec. It looks like I have... Oh, there we go. Okay, sorry. Um, And we review a book, and uh, that segment is usually about what, five, 10 minutes long, something like that. By the way, I got a lot of flack last week uh, for my, for, <laughs> for, for downing Lou White's uh, uh, design and pagination. Um, so hey, what, what can you do? Anyway, um, and this, this week we actually, so we'll talk about why we decided to do this, but this week we're going to focus on that segment for the entire time, which should be fun. Um, but first... Uh, we should say thank you to some people. First of all, uh, it should be known that uh, Messiah Matters is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Torah Resource uh, has all sorts of free resources along with resources that you can purchase. And right now, it's uh, the season of Shavuot. We're coming up to Shavuot coming this Saturday. And so that means that uh, you should be preparing your hearts and your minds for uh, this wonderful festival. You can do that by going to TorahResource.com. And on the homepage in the slider, you can find uh, several different articles that my father, Tim Hag has written on the Festival of Shavuot and the Giving of the Spirit and other things. Um, we actually have a fun little video that we just did uh, for our, our uh, supporters on the Messiah Matters More page, which uh, our supporters can find at that page. Um, and then also... Of course, Messiah Matters is brought to you by our producers, our associate producers, and our supporters. And we thank every single person who supports this show. It truly is a blessing to us. Okay, and then also, if you want to be a part of this show, you can give us a call. Um, You can call our comment line. You won't talk to us. You'll just hear a message machine. It's 253-465-3205. 253-465-3205, or you can send us emails. It's C Hag. That's my name. C-H-E-G-G at TorahResource.com. Okay, with all of that said, let's now go to the reason that we're doing this show. Originally, Ariel Berkowitz, who's a teacher at Torah Resource Institute, contacted us and asked us if we would be willing to 
um, do book a book review of this book and have each teacher kind of write a little thing on various chapters of it. Um, so the staff, uh, we all got one of these books and uh, instantly, <laughs> instantly there was a lot of talk around the office and uh, amongst the staff about uh, the various things that were being said in this book. So let's look just at the very basic, uh, what this book is. It's called... It's called Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus, and uh, the authors, for those who receive our show notes, you can, uh, you can, there's a link to the book and everything on Amazon, and uh, the authors are all there and everything. It's, it's co-authored by three different authors. I, I've dropped the ball. I actually don't have the book in front of me, um, so I, I, the author's names are, uh, yeah, they, I, they're not in my mind right now. Um, okay, so, go ahead. I can give them to you. Go ahead. Death Postal, Eitan Bar, and Eris Zorif, and they all are uh, involved with or connected with the Israel College of the Bible, which apparently now is having a new name, uh, or their their uh, website is oneforisrael.org. They're, uh, they're all involved with the Israel College of the Bible in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not familiar with these, teacher, with these teachers slash authors. Are they... Are they messianics? Are they Christians? Are they what's the? Does anybody know? Not that it really matters. I would I would classify them as Israeli Christian, um, even though they would self-identify as as messianic Jewish. Um, and we can get into why uh, Israeli evangelical. Um, yeah. In terms of scholarship, I don't know about Eitan Bar or Eris Sorif, uh, but Seth Postles, we use his book, uh, Adam is Israel, or something like that. Uh, it's a book he wrote that talks about the structure of the, the Genesis account of Adam and its uh, potential literary foreshadowing of Israel in the first chapters of Genesis. And so uh, I think he does a, a pretty good job of that. And, and so we have that as one of our reading in, in a, a series of several readings, both from Jewish scholars and uh, Christian scholars on how to read the Torah. How do different scholars read and understand the Torah? And we use Dr. Postel's work as uh, one example uh, of comparing and contrasting. And some of that work makes its way into this book. There's some rehashing of, of, uh, of that same material from his book, Adam is Israel, so, in first chapters here. So Derek uh, Blumenthal in the chat room says, Seth Postal is the keynote speaker at CPM Simcha Retreat this year, which happens actually next weekend. All right. So Derek, you can ask him some questions after this about his chapters in this book. Um, okay. Yeah, I those are people ministries, right? Right, right, right. Okay, so um, before we jump into specific passages in the book and or specific topics that they uh, that they cover, what's uh, somebody give me an overview of the book as a whole? What are they trying to do? What what's the overall goal of the book? I c I could address that, Tim, if if I may. Um, uh, the basic picture that is laid forth is an argument that the Torah itself, the written Pentateuch, what we what tradition calls the five books of Moses, um, is not as um, the rabbis are said in this book to to teach uh, that a, that it's a law book first and foremost. Rather, it is a prophetic text that 
shows not only the inability of, of humans to obey God, to keep the Torah, but that that's not its even intent. That the, that the Pentateuch, uh, if you could say that Pentateuch has a big idea, and I'm drawing on John Salehammer, who is a big influence. I think his, this book might be influenced by him, or, or dedicated to him even. Um, that the big idea of the Pentateuch is that a, a contrast between the faith of Abraham and then the inability of Israel to keep the Torah. And that, it, so it points beyond itself to the Messiah who will fulfill the Torah and enable God's people to live by faith. So the claim is, and, and of course, Romans 10, 4, right, uh, is, is cited a few different times as the proof text, right? The, the Messiah is the goal of the Torah for righteousness to everyone who believes. And of course, we, we rejoice in that, uh, in that clear, concise teaching that Paul gives. Um, but where, where this book seems to, to go a little bit astray, in our view, is by su its clear, repeated suggestion that the Torah does not encourage, it does not actually encourage obedience uh, to the commandments, but rather only points to man's inability to ever do it. And because they take it this way, because this is the presupposition that the Torah does not encourage obedience, but rather it just exposes um, sin and points to Yeshua, um, by the end of the book, the, the authors are having to articulate why in Israel, because they're Jewish, why do you see us keeping Shabbat? Why do you see us keeping Pesach and some of these commandments? And so what they have to do is explain, don't misunderstand. We keep these commandments not because they're commandments, not because there's any obligation, but only as a means of communicating Yeshua to, within a culture that values those commandments. Okay, hang on just so, a second. So, so does that mean that they, so I, I, this feels familiar because, um, you know, the MJAA and uh, some other groups, I believe, uh, have uh, have essentially said that Torah is used almost as a evangelical method to yeah. to get the get the Jews to come to Christ is this the same this kind of idea? This would be in alignment. Yeah, this would be in alignment with that. As a matter of fact, at the very towards the end of the book, they say this almost verbatim: Christmas trees and Easter bunnies aren't helpful in Israel to communicate the truth of Yeshua. So they you so they don't use Christmas trees and Easter bunnies. They use the feast days, Day of Atonement. Wait, are uh, those Shabbat things, rest? Are the those beauty of the kindling of lights. Are those things well, helpful I would anywhere? say no. I would say that that was really not whoever edited that or wrote that wasn't really thinking that through. That uh, Christmas trees and Easter bunnies obviously wasn't uh, even part of the imaginative horizon of what Paul would even dream of in communicating the truth of of Yeshua and the gospel to the Gentiles in the first century. So um, it almost sounds like they're saying evangelicals, you in America and in the West, Go ahead, use your Christmas trees and Easter bunnies. We in Israel don't use that because it won't. It only adds noise to our target mission audience. So they admit that a well, and they say clearly time and again that the food laws have been done away. So I, they don't say that they keep any dietary restrictions, but they do say they enjoy Arab Shabbat, Shabbat, the feast days, um, and they use these uh, as opportunities to 
to teach the truth about Yeshua to Jewish believers. But they, uh, time and again, they have to explain to their Western Christian evangelicals not to misunderstand our observance as in any way obedient to, as obedience or some sort of obligation to uh, the Torah. Rather, it is uh, we, Yeshua fulfilled it all. Rather, we do this as a tool. Um, and uh, that, and so that's, oh, and in so doing, they make the point time and again that Torah observance is impossible. And if you meet anybody who says they're Torah observant, it actually gives questions to ask, like, are you going to stone intele- uh, uh, homosexuals? Are you going to stone your children? Are you going to, um, well, there's a whole list of things. Do you, do you wear clothes of mixed uh, fabrics? You know, uh, so they give a list of questions to ask somebody who professes to be Torah observant. Now, um, <laughs> so it seems like it's a, it might be also as a, uh, secondarily as a handbook to equip uh, Jewish Christians in Israel who encounter uh, Messianic Jews and Gentiles who are pro-Torah. Okay, so to say, look, here's a way to trip them up. Okay, so Dad, what are I mean? It well, seems like the over. Let, Go ahead. First, let me comment about the uh, uh, Christmas trees and, and and Easter bunnies. It sounds to me like they're using that as a metaphor for traditional Christianity in a non-Jewish context. In other words, if you if you're in America, if you're in Europe, when December comes. Uh, or before, you know, you have, you know, before Easter, um, you, you, you have Lent, you have this long period of time where you're, you know, so forth and so on. So basically what they're saying is Christianity that you have and the way it is uh, practiced in traditional non-Jewish context won't work in Israel. And I think that's amazing because uh, when we see what, what Paul does, he brings the same gospel to the Gentiles that he did to the Jews. I mean, it's one and the same. He doesn't he doesn't make one or the other. In fact, um, repent. The, yeah, repent. <laughs> the, the gospel the gospel was so uh, clearly laid out that when he came back to his synagogue community, which included in his day undoubtedly a good number of unbelieving Jews as well as as believing Jews. He was persecuted. He was, you know, he took lashes five times. It, why didn't he just find a way to give the gospel that, so it wasn't offensive? In other words, why didn't he morph it where he was to fit the? the no, I'm not. I'm not accusing them of doing that. But it just sounds to me like, at the very core, there's a different approach to saying I have to wrap the gospel in a right kind of wrapper, or it will be immediately rejected. If I wrap it in a wrap in a wrapper that says Torah, that says Shabbat, that says kosher eating, when in fact I don't believe that, but if I use that as a way of uh, of of at least handing the package to somebody so that they'll unwrap it. So, so that, I, that, that sounds to me. I got a question yesterday. Someone uh, emailed in, um, and they they asked a question that went something like this. Uh, I have a, a preacher who is preaching that um, that uh, Yeshua is deity, but that when we evangelize, especially when we evangelize the Jews, we don't have to mention that at all. 
is that a problem? And it almost, I mean, no, obviously that's too extreme. That's it's extreme. But my response was, no, of course, from our faith is centered around the idea that Yeshua is in fact deity. But it seems like there's this want to to wrap the gospel up in a different package. If we can put it in a different box and present it a different way, and this is kind of the seeker the seeker friendly church idea too, right? If we get them in with the with the Christian rock concert and the lights and the fog machines, then they'll hear the gospel and then they'll come to Christ. Is that kind of the same kind of thing that's going on here? It's it almost sounds like it. Well, I, I would I would say this, and I have to be careful with this because God uses all kinds of means that go beyond our understanding. Uh, I remember the the little thing that uh, that is in one of Spurgeon's um, sermons where he he gives the illustration that they were uh, they lost their meeting place and they rented the Metropolitan Opera House um, in order to hold their services. He went in uh, during the middle of the week before their first service there and uh, they let him in because he wanted to check the acoustics. Of course, they didn't have a sound system. In those days, you had a stage and you had to have a projecting voice. So he got up on the stage. As far as he knew, he was the only person in the whole place, except for the person that let him in. And he just quoted, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he did it in his robust voice and heard the, you know, heard the reverberation, said, okay, you know, this is going to work. Well, a, a, a few months later, as he's... Uh, the service is over and people are going out. And he's standing at the door, uh, shaking hands and welcoming people and telling them goodbye and so forth. A man comes to him and he says, I want to tell you, Dr. Spurgeon, that um, it, it was because of your words that I am now a believer. And he said, how is that? What, what sermon was it that I preached? You know, I'm curious. He said, oh, no, no, no. I'm the janitor here in <laughs> the opera house. And uh, he said, I was up in the balcony cleaning the floor down on my knees. And I thought I was the only one there. And all of a sudden, I heard this booming voice, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I couldn't get it out of my head. And I went and talked to my friends, and I said, Does anybody know what this means? And they said, Well, it's in the Bible somewhere. He said, So I began to read. He said, I started reading. They said I should read the, the story of, of Jesus, the, the Gospels. So I started reading there, and sure enough, I, I, I found it there. And he said, I, I had to follow up, and I followed up on that. And he said, I came to the realization that I was a sinner, and that I needed the Lamb of God. <laughs> and, you know, he tells that story just to say, God can use anything, okay? But I, I am very, very concerned that when the gospel is watered down, when it's made palatable, I believe that there may be people who hold on to it, and it's really not the whole gospel, and they really not, have not repented, they really have not believed, but they think that if they have made some kind of gesture towards a gospel as it's taught at a conference or, or at, at a you know crusade or something to that effect, that now they're saved. So, and that's all they have to do. And I think it's dangerous. Isn't that the opposite of what's going on here, though? These people are saying that it's not necessary, although the Bible seems to teach that these things are necessary, and not for salvation, but for sanctification. And they're essentially adopting truth to try to sell the gospel, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I just want to go to a comment here in the chat room. Derek says, there is uh, certainly something to be said about cu cultural sensitivity, though, yes? And then uh, this is actually a great interchange. Peter says, Derek, not according to Don Rickles. And Derek writes back, the gospel according to uh, Don Rickles, a perfect abomination. Um, so, but, but Derek's overall point is that uh, cultural sensitivity isn't necessarily wrong, right? 
And no, of course, and so, it's so, so to so to attempt to um, uh, be cultural culturally sensitive and share the gospel is okay. And even to share the gospel, uh, well, I mean, the fact that these people, these believers, are now celebrating the Sabbath and these things, I mean, that's a good thing, right? It is, but they're doing it. it it's it's hidden. In other words, once some this would be my question after reading through the book, when an Israeli, uh, a Jewish Israeli citizen, comes to faith in the Messiah through the work of these people who are there uh, uh, attempting to give the gospel, do they set them down at some point and say, "By the way, even though we were keeping, you know, we showed you we were keeping the Sabbath, we were doing those kinds of things, the festivals and so forth," that's really not necessary. That has all been done away with. We just did that to open the door so you would come and listen. Do they tell them that? In other words, if, if someone were to say to me, this is what, by my lifestyle or by my, by my deeds, I'm showing you what God requires. And then afterwards, when I agree with them, they tell me, well, that's not true. We just did that in order not to offend you. That would seem to me to be, uh, well, that would, I just think that's wrong. I just think it's wrong. If we think that we're that we need to water down the gospel, or we need to change the way it's delivered in the scriptures, in order to entice people to receive it, I think we're treading on very very dangerous ground. And it clearly has no uh, precedence in the apostles. They went and proclaimed the gospel with kindness, with cultural sensitivity, but yet not in any way diminishing the truth. You know, when Peter is on the day of Shavuot, when he's telling them, he's he's saying, this one that you put to death is the true Messiah. You need to repent. I mean, that's, he gives the gospel in its purity, and yet he there he is celebrating Shavuot, but he still gives the gospel in its purity, and I think that should be the pattern for what we do as well. Okay, let's look at some uh, specific uh, some specific passages that this book touches on, and there are several of them. Um, these might actually hang people up uh, in general, all right? Uh, so we're looking at, uh, for instance, Galatians 3. <clears throat> they touch on Galatians 3.19. The Torah was added <clears throat> because, uh, pardon me, because of transgressions. Um, and so how do they view this passage? And then what would be um, perhaps, I mean, are they viewing it correctly? Or is this uh, is this a misstep on their part? That's a that's a, a key verse uh, in my reading of this book. Um, they take uh, Galatians three nineteen, where it says the Torah was at. Why then the Torah? The Torah was added because of transgressions. Okay, and so they take these transgressions. Uh, they define it very specifically, and they don't offer any alternative. You know, there's, you know, six or seven ways that this has been read, and we think this is the strongest. There's no, because this is not written as a scholarly work. This is a book that's written just to tell people the way it is, right, without giving any kind of uh, fuzzy or uh, presenting any place where there is argument or dispute. And they take it to be Israel's transgression. And so the book clearly shows like, for example, the tzitzit, the commandment to wear tzitzit is, a, is the example given, that it was only after the sin of the spies that the, that the, the commandment for tzitzit was added. Another is that the Levitical uh, 
priesthood was created after the golden calf event. So in other words, Israel transgressed and then Torah was added. And so the authors of this book take for granted that what Paul means in Galatians 3.19 by the Torah being added uh, for the sake of transgressions, they take, this book takes for granted that that means Israel transgressing and then God adding to, adding commandments on as a response to those transgressions. And so what happens is we end up with this accumulated body of, of extra laws that were added, all of which were only temporary. They were only temporary. And tzitzit, right, is, is the ex big example that's unpacked. And given uh, the example they give, or the analogy is that of a curfew, for, uh, like a, a, a son who needs discipline. So they give a curfew until the son learns to be mature. Then they take the curfew away because the son has internalized the curfew and doesn't need the external command uh, to be in place anymore. And they use that specific example to try to illustrate that the commandments are added after Israel sins. Um, and if I'll just, uh, if I make one more comment on that, Tim, because I'd like to hand this over to you. Um, I think it's uh, Richard B. Hayes's commentary, New, Inter uh, New Interpreter's Bible commentary, Richard Hayes on Galatians. He counts, he says there's at least five ways that scholars have taken this added because of transgressions. And he lists this example uh, and he dismisses it, the one that this book uh, offers. Now, of course, uh, Dr. Hayes's commentary on Galatians is many, many years old now, at least a decade probably, so it precedes this book. Um, uh, but even Dr. Hayes's excellent commentary misses, uh, uh, does not list what I think is, is the best explanation, which is the one that Tim gives in his commentary on Galatians, um, that how the Torah actually teaches us about substitutionary atonement, um, which this book in another context does say, without the Torah, we wouldn't know about substitutionary atonement. <laughs> uh, but they don't do it in explaining Romans or, or Galatians 3.19. Um, Tim, I'll ha hand it over to you. Well, I, I think the uh, the meaning of this verse in in the context of Galatians 3 does hang on, the, on a word that it seems as though uh, our authors are not that keen on talking about. And it's the word because. That's translated because it was added because. Uh, it's it's the the Greek word karen, which if you look it up in uh, standard lexicon like uh, the the uh, dag uh, that we use, that's an abbreviation for Bauer, Art, and Genrich and Decker or Denker. Denker, uh, Anchor, yeah, yeah. Um, it's the standard Greek lexicon, and if you look that up, it says that it gives the goal or the purpose that it was given, that, uh, that something happens. Now, let's, let's take that in mind and then, and then ask this question. It, it says, Paul says, why then was the law given? Okay, why then the law? And it, it, it says, but the word given is not there. In your in the net right. Bible or in other places, why was why then the law? But the point simply is that God had already made a covenant with Abraham, and we know that this covenant passes on to his descendants. And because it says at the beginning of Exodus, 
in chapter 3, it says, And God remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he took note of, and I'm paraphrasing now, he took note of the burden that the Egyptians had placed upon uh, upon Israel. And in fact, the first time that you have Israel being called, uh, being used, the word Israel being used as the nation that God chose, was when he says, Israel is my firstborn. He's talking about the nation. Okay, so why the law then? And he says, it was because of transgressions was it uh, added. Okay, it was added to what? Now, the book that we're, that's under discussion says, well, it was add added later to what? I don't know. What did, what did they say it was added to? But at any rate, it seems very clear that it was added to the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was added to the Abrahamic covenant. We already know that the impetus for God bring, uh, uh, intending to bring Israel out from underneath the bondage of Egypt was in order to be faithful to his covenant, which he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it seems to me that when it says it was added, it was added to the Abrahamic covenant. You cannot separate the Torah given at Sinai, which is a covenant, from the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant relates to justification. But, uh, and, Tim, if I may, Paul makes that point very clear, lest his readers of Galatians misunderstand. He says, is the Torah against the promises? Yeah. No, have, uh, in no way whatsoever, he says. So don't even think right. that the Torah is against the promises. So then I think we need to read this uh, 319 of Galatians. Why then the Torah? It was given in order to, and I'm being expansive, but the, the word because or current, the goal was to uh, give an, a perfect illustration to Israel with regard to transgressions. How were they to overcome the penalty of transgressions, which is an eternal penalty. The soul that sins shall die. How were they to overcome that? How was it that they were to become more and more righteous? It was because it was uh, in order to show that transgressions are forgiven based upon an innocent sacrifice being, or innocent animal being sacrificed in the place of a person who is guilty. Now, does that sacrifice take away their sin eternally? No. But what was it? It was always a, an example, a perfect picture of the coming one, which is why when Yochanan, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he didn't have to stop and answer a bunch of questions with people saying, What do you mean? Why do you call him the Lamb of God? Everybody knew that. Everybody right. knew that the Lamb that was, that was slain, and, and John in the book of Revelation says the lamb slain before the foundation of the world or the lamb slain for us, however you want to take that text. But nonetheless, Yeshua is the lamb of God. And that ultimately then is why we have, why was the Torah given? To give example after example after example how transgression, how sin would be forgiven. And it goes on to say, right. until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. Okay, in other words, it, it, the, the Torah was given in order to point to the Messiah. With that, we agree fully with our uh, authors that we're, uh, that we're critiquing here. But the point simply is, is that the Torah doesn't go away. The Torah is, in fact, the very uh, guideline for how someone who is born from above ought to walk their life in righteousness. And, and so 
the Torah was given to show how this would come about. And there's plenty of other things we can talk about quickly about how the Torah itself makes this very clear. But this is a total misunderstanding of Relations 319 in their book. Okay, let's move then. Now that one, we've... One, one, the strength of, just if I may, Caleb, the strength of, of reading it the way Tim has so well uh, described is the parallel in Romans 4.15, that where there is no Torah, there is no parabasis. It's the same exact term for transgression that we see in, in Galatians 3.19. There, that sin needs to be not only clarified, what is sin, because remember, God is a God of love and truth. And so he can't express his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, without also, he's not going to ignore the elephant in the room. Sin has to be addressed, and the Torah teaches that, that he is forgiving and if God is a forgiving God, he also then is going to communicate the, the nature by which sin, which is, of course, an offense to his holiness, um, uh, is dealt with. And so, like Tim said, we agree the Torah, uh, Messiah is the goal of the Torah, that the, we agree that the Torah teaches substitutionary atonement, but we, we uh, are in disagreement with how to read uh, Galatians 3.19. Um, this book posits that as like there's a timeline, and when Messiah came, the Torah was over, and this and um, so no longer obligatory, but up to that point, it was obligatory. Um, and they do it in one other verse besides Galatians 3.19, and I don't know if that's where you're headed uh, next, Caleb. But I, was go going, I was going to Hebrews. Did you want to go somewhere else? Yeah, that's it. That's actually the other one where where they use it as a tie-down to identify with Messiah's ministry an end of one way of interacting with God and the beginning of a, of a new way of interacting with God. So Go the, the passage that we're looking at is Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. And it says, To food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. And Go. <laughs> they take they take okay excellent they take this until a time of reformation to be when jesus would come mm -hmm. jesus comes and um this word reformation is uh, the commentaries say really it's more like a time of of correction of setting things in order um, and they take that as uh when yeshua came in his incarnation, that he set things in order, that he brought the the restoration, and that and so therefore, just it's read more or less along the same uh, with the same hermeneutical framework that Gal that they read Galatians three nineteen. That is, you imagine this timeline. It's one way obligation to Sinai covenant, obligation to Sinai covenant, and then all of a sudden. Boom, Yeshua comes, and there's no longer obligation to sign a covenant because the laws is, is Jesus fulfills those. And so uh, from there on out, it's a, it's a new thing. Um, and so this also, um, they take for granted that this is the meaning. Um, and I think that uh, uh, people who are really interested in this topic would do well to, again, Tim, I'll plug your Hebrews commentary, to spend some time um, uh, diving into the, not only the larger 
passages here in the Epistle of Hebrews as a whole, and, and particular chapters 7, 8, 9, and into 10. Um, but also this idea of whether the, the Epistle as a whole sets it as everything is set right with Yeshua's coming, or if there is still a, a longing for things to come. Um, and I, I would argue that the Epistle as a whole is not saying that Yeshua has come and set everything right, but rather that the believers are encouraged to persevere through the difficulties because Yeshua is going to come again, and this time for salvation, and that that hasn't happened yet. And so even the, the epistle of Hebrews does not set it forth. Well, it does, of course, use uh, 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 the Yom Kippur and the Mishkan to point to Yeshua's heavenly intercession, uh, ascension and inter uh, absolutely necessary intercession for us, for our salvation and our perseverance. But um, doesn't uh, the Epistle of Hebrews doesn't set it as a done deal in terms of that there's no more work to do for setting things in order. Rather, it says, no, we wait for him and that he will come again with salvation and that we're looking toward that. And in the meantime, we, we know that though we suffer in a world that is still full of injustice and still full of sin, sin by which still the ongoing curse of the Torah is in the world because of, um, that we endure and we have a great cloud of witnesses, as it puts it, of the, the men and women of faith all the way back to Abel that are shining lights for us as an encouragement of the scriptures to persevere. And of course, Yeshua set forth as none of our suffering um, has even touched on the suffering that Yeshua endured. And so, um, Tim, I'll stop there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'd like to tie in one other thing with regard to this Hebrews 9 passage and the time of Reformation. First of all, um, just from my perspective, and listen, I, I take a lot of heat from people who don't like the things that I've written or the way that I've written them or <laughs> whatever. So I know as an author it's kind of hard sometimes to, to be critiqued with, with your own writing. But frankly, when I've read this book, I don't understand where they're going some of the time. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, the, the big picture is that they're saying, if you look at the way the five books of Moses, the Torah, are structured, we have to say that it's structured, and I'm being very brief here, but it comes across to me that they're saying, the structure that we find, the literary structure, tells us that God always intended the Torah to be just temporary. He never intended it to be eternal. He intended to replace it, and we see that just by the way of structure. Well, I, I, I mean, they haven't proven that to me by any shake of the imagination. <laughs> There's so many different ways that the structure that they're talking about uh, takes us in an entirely different direction. But if they want to talk about structure, let's talk about it in Hebrews. Isn't it nice when an author tells you what his primary point is that he's trying to get across? And to me, that's very good, because then you say, okay, now I can put everything in. And hang my hat on that, yeah. <laughs> So when we read in Romans 8, where we start this new section, after 7, we start 8, 9, and 10 as kind of a, a section, or 8 and 9 particularly, he says, now the main point of what we are saying is this, we have a, such a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, set up. And I'm reading the Net Bible there, so if... Uh, I've just changed in order to say, well, is it the same 
basically it is the same in pretty much all although the uh, the translations all right well if that's the case then my question is are these authors willing to take this take chapter eight and couple it with chapter nine and not cherry pick out just a verse out of chapter nine about a time of reformation because eight ends with this and people have taken this wrongly and i believe they do so in this book too at the end of eight the uh the writer to the hebrews says when he that is when god said a new one the word covenant's not there it's not in the greek right it's been added now they're, right their book has covenant, yeah yeah, they're talking. They're ta in the in chapter eight. He's talking about the new covenant. Okay, no doubt about it. But the point that the author is making in in verse thirteen at the end of that chapter is when he calls the covenant new. What is new about it? In other words, what's new? He's already told us, right, that we have a high priest who is in Yeshua. So then he says he has made the first obsolete. He's made the first what obsolete? He's made the first priesthood obsolete in the sense of there's no more temple, all right? But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. It's not the Torah that's ready to disappear. I think, I personally think that there's good evidence that the right, that the Hebrews was written after the destruction of the temple. There's also some historical evidence that they continued to try to have sacrifices on the Temple Mount even after the destruction uh, of the temple. Um, he says, they're trying to maintain this sacrificial system, but it's about to disappear. And he goes on then to say, Yeshua is the true high priest. Yeshua is the one to which the priesthood pointed. And he goes on in 9 and later to explain what he's doing and how it is, a, is accomplishing the ultimate and final salvation. Now, interestingly, in, in my opinion at least, when you read the book of Ezekiel, it appears to me that there's no way out of it. There's going to be a future time when Yeshua returns and reigns upon this earth. I don't know if the authors of this book, reading Moses and seeing Jesus, I don't know if they believe in a coming millennium or not. Do they believe that a temple will be restored? Do they believe that sacrifices will be reinstated, as Ezekiel seems to indicate? Apparently not. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. But this is what the writer to the author is saying. When he returns, and when there's this period of everything brought together, and that's what the term Reformation that is uh, translated here, it means to put everything into, into correct order. When we read Ezekiel, we never see a, a high priest. The high priest is not mentioned in Ezekiel, in the, at the end of Ezekiel. The priests are mentioned, but never the Kohen Gadol. It's always a prince. Who is this prince? The prince is the one that's acting as the high priest. It seems to me very, very possible, and, and I, think, I think this is what Ezekiel's teaching, that the Messiah will return and he will uh, administer things in the temple for what reason to show everyone again what the real picture was that the sacrifices were to project forward to the ultimate sacrifice that the high priest was to act in a way that would foreshadow the true eternal high priest so they, they've totally missed that in in their uh, exposition and i think the reason is is in this book is because they already have their minds made up that the Torah cannot, cannot be followed. Last thing I'll say, because I'm getting a little long-winded here, but if, if we go back to Deuteronomy 30, okay, so 
It, Deuteronomy 30 starts out this way. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, he's talking to Israel, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. First thing I'll just say is this, that the, when God administers the curses or the punishment of the Torah, it's because he's being faithful to the Torah. Amen. He's not doing away with it. The text, right. the scriptures teach us whom the Father loves, he he disciplines. Amen. And you he says, and you call them to mind. He says, when, when, when you are... Uh, when these things have come upon you, both the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Why has he banished Israel? Because Israel has been disobedient. Doesn't that tell you that he's still being faithful to the covenant? And you then in the land of your enemies where he's banished you, you return to the Lord your God and obey him. That's the word Shema, okay? That you Shema Bakolo, yeah. You hear his, obey him. You literally obey his voice with all your heart and soul according to all that I commanded you today. Wait a minute. Is there a future promise for Israel that God by his spirit will pour his spirit out upon them and they will repent and they will look upon the one who is whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him and they will return to him with all their heart? Yes. Then what will happen? He says, you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from your captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. I think mm -hmm. the writer to the Hebrews has this concept in mind as he writes. Okay, so... With, said, go, absolutely, and if I, may, if I may add one thing, the, the vision here is also not only just Israel, but right. Gentiles joining with them. And absolutely. and here's the thing. If we go to the, back to the assumption, that uh, the claim, the core thesis of this book is the Torah does not encourage people to obey it. Rather, it points beyond itself, points through to, past to Messiah. And we want to say, look, that sounds on the surface kind of spiritual, kind of Pauline, but in fact, the Torah does encourage obedience. This is where we differ. And we would say, Joshua won. Okay, hang on. Joshua read the Torah correctly, and God told him to to study and meditate on that which is written in it, right. in order to do it. Okay, right. but, but before, and not only that, we have in Isaiah one. Isaiah says, "Your Sabbaths and festivals are abhorrent to me because their hearts were not pure." But even Isaiah in chapter fifty six and beyond envisions Shabbat keeping. The same thing with the prophet of Jeremiah. Uh, also in the in the late first temple era what does jeremiah say he says israel broke the covenant right which the covenant they broke jeremiah 31 right. and talks about the brihadashah but jeremiah if he thought the torah did not encourage obedience why in chapter 17 is jeremiah teaching the people that the lord says to keep the shabbat that shabbat is obligatory Okay, but be before we move on, because I want to go back to the point that you were making about these authors uh, making the uh, putting forward the idea that the structure of the Torah, the structure of the five books of Moses, are setting up a uh, basically that the structure shows that it was never supposed to be forever. Okay, the first thing that I thought of was does how does this um, does this line up with Kaiser's view Walter Kaiser's view of built-in obsolescence and actually Derek in the chat room he uh, he he caught the same thing he says Silva makes a similar point in his and Kaiser's intro to biblical hermeneutics that Torah had a built-in temporary nature so you have people like Silva and Kaiser now who who have a built-in obsolescence with Torah that is that certain parts of it fall away after a while 
does are these authors is it are they trying to basically expand on built-in obsolescence or is it are they saying something totally different they're saying something they're saying something different because when kaiser says and i've talked with him personally on this you know he he's saying that sabbath and and food laws and so forth but he wouldn't say that the torah has been done away with he he would say it has enduring importance enduring um significance and enduring responsibility on the behalf of the followers of Yeshua with regard to the Torah. He's simply saying that some of it, and he uses the illustration of those, uh, the Kenites and others who were uh, uh, commanded or singled out to carry certain parts of the tabernacle, right? Okay, so uh, he said obviously that God knew that that was going to end when they got into the land and built the temple and they were no longer taking things down and setting them up and taking them down and setting them up. Right. But but if you ask him about what he would call the moral or ethical aspects of the Torah, he has a lot of writing where he says how valuable it is. No, what these people are saying is, if from what I get, if, and again, I, I have to admit, if from my perspective, it's written in a way that's very difficult to understand in terms of getting this across. They get, they really hit hard about Torah's, no, it's no longer obligated, you're not obligated to any of it. Okay, you, you don't have to do it. God doesn't require this. It's no longer, it's not commandment. Okay, they do a good job at hitting that over and over again. But how they understand that by way of so-called literary form doesn't make sense to me at all. And the other thing is, it's not, not only that the Torah encourages us, the, the commands of the Lord become precious to us. Isn't this what David says in 19? The Torah of the Lord is complete. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, uh, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. He says it's gold. It's more precious than gold. He's not looking at it as some kind of uh, burden or whatever. No, he's saying that the Torah enables us to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. When you truly love someone, you're more than happy and eager to please them. Has God loved us? He's loved us with a love that's eternal, that's that's beyond our ability to fully describe. If he says, I want you to keep this day, I want you to eat this food, what do we say? Yes, and when, when we say yes, what does that mean? It means we're saying, Lord, I wanna show you how much I love you for what you've done for us. The Torah is not some kind of bondage. It's not a burden upon us. Now, last thing I'll say, they don't understand what it means to be under the Torah. Study it. Right. Just look and see what it means in Pauline theology to be under the Torah. It means to be under the curse of the Torah. Exactly. They, they, they do not. Uh, and so we're no longer under the curse of the Torah. No, the curse. Ha it, in fact, Paul uses the term Yeshua has become a curse for us. <laughs> right. Cursed is everyone. Well, those, who, those who are in Yeshua are no longer under the curse of the Torah. That's there's, another, there's another example of the on, enduring uh, nature of the of the Torah. Is that yeah. what's there to repent from? If the yeah. Torah, if there's Torah's done away, is that yeah. there's the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, right? right. And, and, the Torah, and the Torah says it, when the when the penalty has been paid, even in just if you're just talking about uh, life in this world, okay, in ancient Israel, if you stole something and you became convicted of it and you repented of it and you gave the thing back to the person you stole it from, and you added a fifth to it, and you went to the, the temple, and you gave a sacrifice, a guilt offering, guess what? You were no longer considered to be guilty of that crime. 
it was paid for. On what basis? The Torah. The Torah presents that. The Torah not only presents the, the uh, way that one is condemned, the Torah presents the way that one can be made right with God. It points right. us to Yeshua and, he, and his work, and therefore, as a result of that, we say, Lord, I want to fulfill, I want to walk in a way that pleases you. And he says, good, here's the book, read it. And then David says, it's wonderful, it's complete, it's full, it revives the soul. And what's the promise of that we see throughout the prophets of the giving of the Ruach? Yeah. Was that they would then walk in his ways, finally. Exodus, not, not, Ezekiel 36, when I pour my spirit upon them, they will no longer do this, they will now walk in my ways. And no one will have to teach them to know the Lord. They will all know me. What does that mean? Have a close personal relationship. Okay, so Rob already touched on Joshua 1.8 a little bit. But let's go to it. Now, the writers of this book, uh, Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus, uh, comment on Joshua 1.8. Is that correct? Well, a few different places. Yeah, it's, cur it's curious how uh, there's two uses of this passage in this book. One usage is as a parallel to Psalm 1, that the Torah is still Scripture. It's still divinely inspired wor word. It still is a source of, of spiritual wisdom and nourishment for the believer in Yeshua. But it's not a command. It's not commandment. That's the, that's the discernment. So it still is uh, enduring um, God-breathed Scripture, but it's no longer commandment. And they use Joshua 1, where it says meditate on it, and parallel that with Psalm 1 and, and other Scriptures, where it talks about the the ideal reader of the Tanakh is one who meditates on the scripture, but they're going to say, but not in order to do it. This is the trip that I just don't understand. But, but then they have one place where they're arguing against uh, the rabbinic doctrine of Torah Shabalpeh, of oral Torah. And because if you know the hard line, um, uh, Rabbinic. If you're if you're bought in to the rabbinic worldview of the Mishnah, you accept the Mishnah as oral Torah transmitted all the way from Moshe at Mount Sinai. That, in other words, that Moshe received two Torahs at Mount Sinai: one in writing, one that was kept exclusively uh, oral and was transmitted mouth to mouth uh, from Sinai down. And the rabbis, of course, paint the picture that they are the uh, present generations. Um, uh, storehouse of the of that oral revelation given to Moshe, and so w when you learn from a, an Orthodox rabbi, or when you uh, live according to their prescribed halacha, you uh, are actually living according to this oral revelation. This just, you're getting it right from Sinai, basically through this chain. What the, the authors of this book want to do, and probably because they're in Israel, I understand, they want, they want to show that this is actually a myth, right? This is a, this is a legend that turned into a myth, and they want to show that the Torah itself has no, there's no such thing as an oral Torah. The rabbis are, have created this myth, and they used this same passage, Joshua 1, to say, look, it says what is written in it. And so here Joshua, who right after Moses dies, is, is equipped. Uh, not only does he have hands laid on him, but he's ordained by God himself to uh, succeed Moshe in leading Israel 
into the promised land. And the Lord himself tells him, Moshe, my servant's dead, etc. Be sure to take what is written in the book of the Torah of Moses, right? What is written in it? In other words, they're saying, see, it doesn't say anything oral. It's all it's written in order to do it. But then they, the, this is where they undermine their own argument in this book because they, they uh, show there that the Torah for Joshua was not just a meditation exercise, like we all agree it is, for our spiritual uh, devotional life and growing in wisdom and fear of the Lord, but also to do, because it, clearly Joshua 1 uh, is reading the Torah and studying the Torah uh, not just as a spiritual uh, exercise divorced from actual doing things in the world, behaving a certain way, um, and this is where this book kind of snips that connection and, and so applies Joshua chapter 1 in two distinct, mutually exclusive ways, and they don't, they don't catch it. They don't catch this, uh, this trip. Yeah, and I, I mean, how many times, I don't understand either why, how they try to sidestep Matthew five seventeen through 20. You know, he says, not the smallest stroke will be passed away uh, until all is fulfilled. And, th and then he goes on, and there, it's all connected by ands, or therefore, or whatever. And so, he says, the one who does these things and teaches others to do them will be called great in the kingdom. Right, Apparently, right. Yeshua considered very clearly that, and, and by the way, uh, and, and let me finish my sentence, I uh, understood, uh, taught very clearly that these uh, commandments in the Torah were to be done. Okay, they were to be lived out. But he starts out by saying, don't let anybody tell you that I came to destroy the law, the Torah, and the prophets. Okay, but the next time he leaves off the word prophets, he just says Torah. You know, as you, as you, as you go through that text, let me just, let me quickly uh, get it here so that you'll see that I'm not just, <laughs> um, uh, he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Verse 18 of Matthew 5, For truly I say to you, until heaven and pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away from the Torah until all is accomplished. So why did he first identify as law and prophets? Because he's not talking about the oral uh, so-called law that, that was extant in his day, however it was, whatever it was, we don't know for sure, but whatever it was, the so-called traditions that set aside, that so easily set aside the commandments of God, uh, as he says in Mark 7. But he says, whoever then annuls one of the least, no, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke uh, will pass away from the, from the Torah until all is accomplished. What does he mean by accomplished? Whoever then annuls one of the least of his commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, whoever, but the word keeps literally is the word poieo, to do. Whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't read this text without saying, uh, you know, you need to be even more concerned about how you're living out the Torah the way God gave it, not the way the Pharisees gave it. But the one thing you have to say about the scribes and the Pharisees, they were extremely, apparently, from what we can tell, at least outwardly, they tried to present themselves as wanting to do every small thing possible and every large thing possible. He says, unless your motivation is to please the Lord in every way, and how to do that? By obeying him. If you obey me, 
to love me, right? The one who loves me, what does he say in John 14, 21? The one, he who has my commandments and keeps them, literally does them, is the one who loves me. What are his commandments? Well, he tells us in Matthew 5. <laughs> These are, he, he, his commandments are different. They are maybe a, an expansion on and an interpretation of and a fuller teaching of what the Torah is telling us by way of explaining how it works in, in various situations that maybe weren't explicitly taught elsewhere. But no, it's the same Torah. It's the same word of God. And that's the final thing I'll say. The thing that bothers me most about this book is that it undermines the very meaning of the scriptures. And when we do that, we, we undermine the authority of the scriptures. So that was going to be my last question to both of you. We're getting ready to wrap up here. But but the question that I would have is, uh, overall, what do you think this, uh, you know, how should this book be viewed? What do you think this will do? Uh, what kind of, you know, it seems like uh, there have been some within the, some teachers within the Messianic movement that have actually endorsed this book. Um, so what, what are the implications? Do you think that this is, uh, uh, this is going to be thrown by the wayside? Or do you think that people are going to grab it and run with it? I think I'll give a quick answer. I don't know how quick if I could do it, but uh, I see it as a snapshot of the state of of the theological conundrum that that in some evangelical circles have painted themselves into, like a, a corner. And it's 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 perhaps seen most in in sharpest relief in uh, evangelical. Jewish mission to secular and observant Jews in the present state of Israel in the 21st century. It's a snapshot of, of uh, and it betrays their, their theological conundrum that they don't grasp themselves. And, and I understand because I think part of the, part of the difficulty uh, could be they're surrounded with very zealous Jewish groups, many of which don't agree with each other. That are not believers in Yeshua. Different sects of of Judaism that um, are very very zealous. And for example, what you know, what your kippah is made of. You know, what kind of kippah do you wear? What do your tzitzit look like? I mean, I we joked around when I was in Jerusalem this last summer. You know, one telephone pole had two stickers. One was a. a Menachem Schneerson as the Messiah, and the other one was the the Breslover guy, Messiah. Okay, so it's like you have bumper stickers on a telephone pole in, in uh, West Jerusalem advertising like, you know, two different completely worldviews. But they're both, if you were to look into those communities, you'd find zealous people who were, quote, Torah observant. So if you were um, representing the Jewish face of the body of Messiah in the land and you're in the midst of such groups, that take for granted oral Torah and written Torah as one seamless whole, where you have rabbis today that have that embody this same authority that goes all the way back to Moshe. I could see a desire to maybe um, not to want to have anything to do with it because it's too tough to assert any kind of Torah observance without it being without dealing with all the assumptions that pertain to rabbinic authority sneaking right in on top of those in cloud and and uh, muddying up the waters but we have no we have no choice as as disciples of yeshua to follow his word which is we have to discern and it's not easy work but we are called to discern the written 
from these traditions of men that that grow like leaven and creep and grow and and through mission creep and try to fill the whole world and obscure the pure true holy words of scripture itself we if you're a disciple of yeshua you you are by definition called to have this kind of uh, uh, discernment on your radar discerning between word of god and traditions of men Rabbis in Israel, the Orthodox rabbis, don't have this permission slip. They don't even have permission. You can't question the Talmud, right? I mean, you could theoretically, for the sake of, of the pill pool, you could say, well, why is Rabbi Akiva arguing this? I disagree, right? And p- part of the pill pool of Talmud, uh, of learning the Gemara. But you're not going to be all all in on the halakha of the sages and then say, you know, the Bavli is a bunch of rubbish and it's a myth that oral Torah Shabal pays a myth from Sinai. You're not going to, you're not going to see someone have both those views. Um, whereas a disciple of Yeshua cannot fully be part of that community. Why? Not because of a denial of Torah's revelation, enduring revelation, but because our, our rabbi <laughs> teaches us that there is, that we are called to make a discernment here. And that's a there. There is a, a, a kind of a spiritual burden on disciples of Yeshua because that's not always easy. It's not always evident. Not every tradition is bad, as we know. There are many beautiful traditions that are not against the Torah, um, and that help education and they help learning and appreciation of of God's word. But discerning the le- getting the leaven out, discerning how the traditions of men creep up time and time again to obscure the living word of God is a core mandate of the disciples of Yeshua. And this book abandons that task. Yes, and I would say one more thing to that, uh, just briefly here. It, uh, it portrays the authors as having this idea that unless I present the gospel in a certain way for a culturally sensitive, ethnically sensitive uh, even religiously sensitive group of people, then they won't receive it. In other words, the receiving the 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 success of the gospel lays in some measure in my hands as to how I present it. If I present it wrongly, they won't receive it. If I re- present it in a way that is is sensitive to their needs, so forth, they will. That is contrary to the scriptures. The verse that's so obvious is Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he be ashamed of the gospel, ever? I mean, why would anybody think he's ashamed of the gospel? Because, because he's talking about Messiah. He's talking about it in a context where people were waiting for and looking for Messiah. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which tells me, he's saying, I'm not going to in any way shave any part of it off. I'm not going to hide any part of it. I'm going to be sensitive. I'm not going to beat people up with it, but I'm not going to diminish it by any by even one stroke. He, why? For it is the power not of me. It's not my power. It's the power of God that results in salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul says, let's take the core of the gospel, which includes repentance, right? Repentance towards God and faith in the Messiah Yeshua. And let's teach it in a way that gives gives the complete gospel forward and leave the outcome to God. In other Amen. words, I'm going to plant the seed, but 
God must bring that seed to life. And that's... I, if, I, if I give one, one example that I know personally, I know someone personally who's a third-generation Israeli rabbi, Orthodox rabbi. He came across a Hebrew Gospel of Matthew at a, uh, somewhere on a bookshelf, and he just grabbed it and read it. And the Ruach worked through him reading that, and he, he's like, I, this is it, this is it. And he had to go around and ask people to learn what it meant to, to be immersed. I, wanted, I want this immersion. And he has kind of a funny story of going to different <laughs> groups of Christianity in the, in the land, you know, of how they each came to him with these different weird traditions. Then he's like, I just want this. And, and the reason I point that out is that's just one example. How many, and he ended up, because of his faith, ended up losing his, he taught Talmud in Jerusalem, ended up getting kicked out, had to move out of the town, uh, you know, all these kind of things that we've seen happen. How often does God just work through just the scriptures like this? And, and the reason I point that out is because here's an example where it didn't have to do with the lifestyle of the person delivering the message. It didn't have to do with, and I would suggest that, you know, whether a, a, an evangelical in Israel is using Torah observance as a means of connection or not, God is the one that takes the word and works in the heart, according to his sovereign election. Um, and that the fact that it can happen even through reading a book, to me, at least encourages, let's get more good, solid Hebrew translations of, of the Gospels with good commentaries that are sound in, into the land, and, and so people can read. Great. That would be great. Okay. And, and, Go ahead. And, and just, uh, you know, I, I know it's very dangerous to, to try to consider motivation or motive, but what was the motive for this book? I'm trying to, you know, come to a conclusion here. What motivated them to put this book together in the way that they did so that when you're done reading it, you come out with this conclusion. God never intended anybody to have to keep the Torah. I, Tim, I think one of them is, I would suspect, because suspect, somewhere in the early part of the book it says, uh, mentions Gentiles asking if the Torah was for them or not. And, I, and my, the tone of it that I read it was that they've probably been approached. Here you've got Jews believing in Yeshua in the land that have degrees in the Bible. Uh, Gentiles come in and say, hey, I, I want to keep Torah. What do I do? And right. so in a way, this is a signal to them saying, don't misunderstand. The reason, yes, we're Jewish and we're doing these things, but we're not doing them out of a, a desire to obey uh, well, the commandments in order to in in order to soften the impact of the gospel in other words we're we're, we're doing so the motivation has to do with being accepted by the israeli religious jewish person so that they can introduce the gospel but then if they introduce the gospel by saying by the way um all of the torah is not is not obligated never intended to be god didn't give it for that reason um, they have undermined the gospel <laughs> because the gospel is not simply just believe and you're in. The gospel is believe and re uh, repent and believe and walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. So what did the, what, and then if someone would ask, well, what did the Messiah Yeshua expect of us in terms of our walk? They've got to go back to Matthew five seventeen. 
the one who will be great in the kingdom is the one who will do these things, teach others to do them, and so forth. So, I mean, Yeshua was not contrary to the Torah. He walked perfectly in the Torah himself. So to me, uh, the, the book itself, just the whole perspective of it, um, kind of, un, uh, you know, we discover some kind of, I think, uh, something that needs to be changed in the motivation for writing the book in the first place. So just to recap, Caleb, we could look at it this way. There's a message in this book that comes out that says uh, the Torah is done away and not obligatory in any way. However, you, you might see Jewish believers in Yeshua occasionally doing things like Shabbat and feast days. Don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand that. That's an, that's a, a, that's an expression of mission to a specific cultural con uh, historical context not a function of their general new life in Messiah. That's one message. Another message you'll see in the Messianic Jewish movement is one of the Torah is obligatory, but only on halakhic Jews and Gentiles, not on Gentiles at all, that there's distinction between. And you'll see that message coming from groups in Israel. And then you'll see a third option, something like you'll find with Torah Resource, is that what we've expressed today is that we understand the, the Bible to be teaching a continuity of covenants and a, a bringing in, such as envisioned in Isaiah 56, etc., that Yeshua even cites, it's on the lips of Messiah while he's knocking over the money changers tables. He's citing um, Isaiah 56. Why is this? Why is this promise of Isaiah uh, that Isaiah writes? It's not Isaiah's promise. It's the Lord's promise. Why is this? These words of Isaiah on our the heart and lips of our Messiah while he's knocking over these money changing tables. We must ask this, and we must ask why. And here we are in the counting of Omer. Why on the day of his ascension, after Yeshua is in his resurrected flesh and blood, is. Um, training them pertaining to the kingdom of heaven, do they ask, at this, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he tells them it's not for them to know that, but they have a mission in the immediate uh, years to go Jerusalem, right? You know, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Why does Yeshua um, allow that question? And why would they, would that, was that a foolish question? Or was that a question based, and an obvious question, based on their attentive listening to the resurrected master? I, I suggest that it was an intelligent question, but it did expose that Yeshua used that opportunity to say, look, you're not going to know everything, but you will receive power. You will receive power from on high, and the Ruach will guide you step by step, and you will learn to walk in the Ruach. And, and I believe that, that the, our efforts at Torah Resource are very much aimed at this third way of of approaching the scriptures, not not saying the Torah is done away, but Jews can do it as a ministry, as an outreach, not as what well, the Torah is enduring, but only for halakhic Jews and not for Gentiles, but in a third way, which we we kind of call it Torah Torah Achat, uh, you know, the one Torah movement, even though that's been characterized in different ways. And so I always put a little caveat there. I'll okay, one, oh. one sentence summary. One sentence summary. Genuine love includes obligation. Okay, okay. with that, the greatest commandment we'll say, is to love. We'll say, uh, be a part of the conversation. Give us a call, 253 465 3205. It's 253 465 3205. 
And you can also shoot us an email, chag at torresource.com. Keep those emails coming. We love them. They uh, help uh, uh, drive this show. A big thank you to our supporters and to uh, the, the producers and uh, executive producers, associate producers who have made this show possible. And we hope that uh, we will see you next week. Have a wonderful Shavuot coming up here on Saturday night. May your uh, study be blessed and may your study uh, through the whole night do one thing. And that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters. <laughs>